Welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast that addresses the needs of business owners before, during, and after they sell their company. As a business owner, you owe it to yourself, your family, and your employees to know your options, to be informed, and to plan early. We hope you enjoy this program, and if you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line by visiting our team's website at www.ubs.com forward slash ATX. This is your host, Josh Pottinger, and joining me is my longtime business partner, Jason Georgianis, and together we run ATX Wealth Partners, a private wealth management team here focused on being a trusted resource for business owners, entrepreneurs, and the professional advisors that surround them. Hey everyone, Josh Pottinger here. I wanted to hop in real quick and say a few words before we get going with our show. We started brainstorming on a podcast series for business owners and entrepreneurs in late 2019. And before we went live with our series, we wanted to bank a few episodes before we launched it. So we recorded our first episode in late January and second episode in early March. 2020. In other words, pre-COVID. And it's a bit crazy to listen to ourselves knowing that the entire world was about to change. Anyways, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And I'm going to talk about this in our initial episode, but I think it's worth mentioning here that the spirit of the Lightning in a Bottle podcast series is that it's evergreen in nature, meaning that the content concepts and perspectives should hold true in any environment and for many years in the future. Of course, tax and legal issues can change over time, but we're not here to give tax and legal advice. That's really something that's highly personal and specific to your own situation. Our team is made up of seasoned wealth management professionals that have been battle-tested for over two and a half decades. And by the way, we've got the battle scars to prove it. We spent a lot of time in the trenches with our clients getting through some very tough times. And really, this time is no exception. So anyway, a huge thank you to you and everyone else that's taken time to listen to our podcast series. And we truly, truly hope you enjoy it. And hopefully you learn a few things in the process. So let's get started. Thanks. Okay, welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast that addresses the needs of business owners before, during, and after they sell their company. As a business owner, you owe it to yourself, your family, and your employees to know your options, to be informed, and to plan early. We hope you enjoy this program, and if you have any questions, drop us a line by visiting our team's website at www.ubs.com forward slash ATX. This is your host, Josh Pottinger, and joining me is my longtime business partner, Jason Georgianis, and together we run ATX Wealth Partners, a private wealth management team focused on being a trusted resource for business owners, entrepreneurs, and the professional advisors that surround them. Also joining us today is a good friend of mine, Ryan Gravel, partner with Kastner Gravel Law Practice. Ryan has managed multiple mergers, acquisitions, and asset transactions. He's also helped raise tens of millions of debt and equity financing and has structured complex strategic alliances and partnerships. We're excited to have Ryan on the line today. And let's go ahead and get started. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much, hey, Josh. Hey, Ryan. 
Well, considering the circumstances, uh, we're doing this remotely. And so I really appreciate you taking time today, Ryan, to, to, to sit down with Jason and I, and albeit virtually, and uh, run through some good information for business owners out there. So, so today we're going to be talking about things that business owners, entrepreneurs should be considering when they're getting to a point in their life cycle where they need to bring on an equity partner. And oftentimes, uh, private equity ends up being a, a, one of those options out there and a very common one at that. And we also want to uh, talk a little bit about the sale process. But before I get into that, Ryan, I, w- I want to ask a very important question, and that's uh, beach or mountains? Which one do you prefer? Well, that's a pretty tough one. I've got a foot in both camps. I, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, so that makes me a, a mountain boy. But I, I feel like I draw my peace and, and, and energy from the ocean. So I don't know. I guess I ought to be living in Southern California where I can head up to Big Bear and then be on you know Manhattan Beach in the same day. But uh, trying to make it work from Texas. <laughs> Well, that's good. Colorado is a wonderful place. We had a, a nice uh, little family vacation out there last week, actually. So it was nice to have a little reprieve from from this uh, 100 plus weather. So I'm a big fan of the mountains as well. I know Jason is. So well, good. Well, now that we got that difficult one out of the way, um, <laughs> why don't we uh, dive in here? So we wanted to speak with you about advice to entrepreneurs and business owners as they're considering accepting, let's say, a Series A, a B, a C, or private equity capital. And then we're going to kind of close it out with some thoughts surrounding the ultimate exit for these stakeholders. It's, sound good? That sounds great. Great. Ryan, it's Jason. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? Um, well, thank you. So um, when we delve in this world and we're, we're speaking with folks about who they're uh, – attaining for their legal services, sometimes we'll get a response along the lines, well, I've got a great business attorney, quote unquote business attorney. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes with a little nudge and push, we'll, we'll direct them to speak to somebody such as yourself. So just generally speaking, what is the primary difference between someone such as yourself at your firm and the, uh, the good old business attorney in town? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I liken it a lot to a physician, right? It's a it's a specialized practice, and then there's also general practitioners. And so I think ultimately it just boils down to you know the experience set of the individual, and you know the you you need different folks at different times in your in your company life cycle, just like you you know need a different doctor for different things that come up, and you know you can have a a, a general business lawyer, a general practitioner who's pretty good at directing traffic and dealing with the day-to-day stuff. But, you know, I, I think raising capital, I think M&A, those are certainly transactions where specialists, I think, are warranted. And so, you know, I think it's important to just have that framework uh, and in mind as, you know, you're running your business. Like, who do I need at what point in time? There are a lot of really talented smart, you know, general attorneys out there who can probably muscle their way through most anything. And so the real differentiator for me is, have you done one of these or have you done a hundred of these? There's a big difference in that. It, it doesn't mean to say that you can't get through it, but I think you'll be better served with somebody who's done a lot of transactions and has the experience because 
particularly with M&A, every deal is very different. Different issues pop up and you want somebody who's been through it, not just to deal with the substantive issues and to be creative and to think through the structuring and, you know, avoid the landmines. But I would say, and I'm sure that you guys see this as well with your practice, selling your business is a is a time-consuming, super stressful affair. And if you haven't done it before, it sometimes feels like, you know, the, the world's coming to an end. I mean, not to overly uh, dramatize things, but I, I think good advisors, not just lawyers, but bankers, financial advisors, CPAs, in this process play a, a little bit of a psychological role as well. And it's sometimes really helpful to just say, this is normal. We bet, you know, here's what the next two weeks is going to look like. Here's what's coming. And that's a that's a really valuable service. That's not necessarily like a, a you know, substantive legal service or anything. But uh, I think it's helpful. And, and it's something that you can do when you're coming from a place of experience. Well, 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 given that experience and given that you've practically seen it all, if not everything by this point, flip it on its head, putting yourself in the stakeholder seat and the founder seat, the, the business owner seat. Having seen what you've seen, how would you go about choosing a PE partner? And, and along the same line, you know, you mentioned being hired to transact. Are, are you ever brought into the picture to help vet the stakeholders' options and help weigh, let's say, one capital received from one private equity firm versus another? Or is it more so the company has decided who their partner is going to be and your job is? purely to transact? We see transactions across the spectrum. So there are definitely times where we get hired for the transaction and, and maybe it's a business that's run for years and they, they do have that general lawyer or they don't have a lawyer or they had somebody that set up a specific piece of, you know, the, the kind of industry they're in, but they're not a transactional lawyer. And so, you know, in, in that event, we, we come in, you know, specifically for that purpose other times, uh, and this is kind of my, my preference, it's just frankly more fulfilling and fun as a professional, but you know, we form a lot of companies and have worked with a lot of companies as they you know, set up, capitalized, started conducting their business, had success, and then started doing things like taking that minority equity partner and then you know, a majority deal or selling the entire business or getting to the point where they're starting to buy other businesses. And you know, the, the longer that relationship you know, we tend to have, as you would expect, you know, a more, you know, broad advisory role. And so it's it's not our kind of stated job to sort of vet those partners. But, you know, when you're in the space a lot, you tend to know the players. You've often had, you know, a couple or maybe more repeat transactions with some of those parties. And that's when you can start telling some more stories or sharing some experiences you know, whether that's kind of more just more broadly and categorical or, hey, we had this thing happen on a certain deal and watch for this or these guys are great in this instance, or, you know, th- thing, things like that. So I think we do participate a fair amount in that kind of counselor role and really enjoy that where we've got something to add that's that's substantive. So, you know, I, I really think just like picking your lawyer or your, you know, wealth advisor or any professional that's going to be helping with your business, just like a member of your team, internal or external, those are really important decisions. And so I think a lot of thought should go into it. I think a lot of diligence should go into it. I think a lot of reference checking should go into it because 
you're partnering. And, uh, you know, even if that's, you know, technically adversarial, y'all are moving towards the same goal, which is to create value and build something for the, for the equity holders. And so you, you want to know who you're, who you're partnering with and really kind of getting as much information as you can on the front end to make that decision. Fantastic. A consultative approach rather than just transactional. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 very helpful. There was a couple things that you mentioned that that really struck a chord with with me, and that's just the emotional roller coaster ride that's involved in in in, in going through through a process. We had a client that just went through a, a Series C, and he's like, "Geez, it just it felt like we were going through an actual sale," you know, with the level of due diligence. And so it's you're trying to run a company, answer questions, and then also go through a process of either you know engaging an equity partner or, or, or going through the actual sale process. So the emotional support level is very important. And you know, one one of the things that Jason and I talk about with folks, you know, before they work with our team is it's just like, look, you've, you know, this is an important decision and, and you gotta have folks that you have good chemistry with. Uh, and when you're going through the sale process, you gotta build that team around you from a business owner standpoint that that you're willing to get in the trenches and go to battle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to the extent, you know, you got good advisors around you that can kind of get you ahead of the game and kind of give you a warning of, of what you're about to embark on. I think that's really, really helpful. So let's break it down a little bit further here. What questions should you be asking? Should you ask when you when you when you meet, let's say, a private equity company that's kind of sniffing around, um, you know, and what, what would be the most important thing to you as far as what a PE firm would bring to the table besides just capital? Yeah, great question. And and I'm going to interpret that question, not just as PE, which I think of as kind of like a technical category, but venture capital, let's just call it outside capital. So bringing somebody into your, into your cap table, obviously that person, that firm is going to, they're going to bring a lot to the table. Everybody markets well. So, you know, you're going to, some of these acquisition offers or even kind of the, the sort of marketing pitches on why you should work with us. I mean, you, you should take them all with a grain of salt. I think people are good at, at, at selling themselves well. But I think the key questions are really contextual. And so it kind of depends on, are you raising the first capital and it's going to be a minority deal? Are you selling the company? Is this a private equity deal where you're rolling over 20% of your ownership into the new company? And, and start from there. And so, you know, I think obviously with any of these, like wh- what do they bring to the table and how and how can you determine what that is? And I think there's not a right or wrong answer. Like I said, there's a there's a context for where you are as a company that makes sense because you may have an unbelievable executive team and operating team and a great network and what you really need is capital and you've got a great go-to-market model, you know how to scale, you just need the dollars. Well, in that case, finding somebody who has a reputation for coming in and shaking things up and really kind of like stepping into an almost operator role, that might not be the right fit for that point in time. And so you're trying to kind of constantly match that up. I was, before we started this firm, I was a general counsel at a SaaS software company that raised a lot of external capital debt and equity. We did a lot of M&A and we had venture backers out of Silicon Valley, some operators, some financial folks, like amazing resources. And the one thing that I tell people all the time, just kind of the experience that I had is, you know, just know that you're, you're like adding pretty strong hands to your steering wheel. 
And so you really want a lot of alignment, right? Like it's a it's a tricky thing to drive that car. And, and that's a great thing too, because there's a lot of other like attributes that come with that and continuing the metaphor that, you know, there's a lot more gas in the tank and you kind of change the type of vehicle you are and what you can do. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to remember like there's institutions and so they bring experience and they bring capital. But I think one of those key questions is institutions are made of individuals. And so who's the individual? Who's sponsoring your deal? What's their history at that firm? Are they going to be the person that sits on your board or you know, is kind of the main point of contact? Or are they teeing up a deal and then you're going to be working with you know, three or four other folks? And if so, who are they? And you know, what's that working dynamic going to be like? So I think that's that's a really important one for me is like, is who's the team? And, and then kind of going back to my earlier like reference to different types of transactions, if it's a control deal and someone's really buying your business, I mean, that can be structured in a variety of ways where you may or may not have an ongoing role. And so to the extent that you do have an ongoing role as the, as the business owner, there's a variety of questions that come up there. Like what is that structure going to be like? You know, what, what are the kind of, retention terms around around your own equity package like i said are you rolling over equity into kind of the the new deal if you're doing that you should put on your hat as an investor because you're really investing in that private equity partner that control partner that, that you're rolling equity into so what are all, what are all those terms what's it like to be a minority owner um, of that business how strong is that business what's the debt load you know how how are they as a business and so there's a number of things to kind of look into in that context, but just generally speaking, kind of across the board, what's the differentiated value that someone brings? You know, is it dollars? Is it operational expertise? There are a lot of funds that have general theses uh, and invest in a number of industries. And then there's obviously some that are really, really deeply entrenched in this specific industry where they may open up a ton of distribution channels or names of, you know, folks that can fill out the leadership team or can bring technical expertise. So I think just knowing who you're, who you need for your business, which is both an internal question and then an external question, you know, like, what do I need at this stage? And then trying to match it up from there. And then the other thing I'll add, and I'll kind of stop is reference checking. You know, if, if someone resists the reference check, that's uh, problematic, obviously, but I think what's really do you, do you helpful run, do is... You run in, do you run into that where they do refuse the reference check? I think you see some resistance and, and that should tell you something, right? Like what, either there's there's something to be hidden or, you know, that's a pretty nefarious interpretation. But I think the other thing is like, it may be somebody who's just kind of haughty about, you know, like, why would you reference check me? Like, mm-hmm. who, look who we are. Here's our brand. Here's our name. Well, you know, everybody should be willing to to say, look, we've been a great partner for these four companies. Why don't you go talk to the selling CEO? And, and then, you know, that's a more formal reference check. A lot of, you know, business folks are great at, you know, their networks. They know a lot of people. I think if you can find somebody who's done a deal that's more of a, you know, sort of back channel reference check. That's terrific information if you can get it. And you need to obviously be <laughs> careful about confidences and politics and all that kind of stuff as you're doing that. But um, I've definitely done some deals where, say, a PE firm or a serial you know, strategic acquirer was buying a company and the, the selling um, equity holders or the, the leadership 
was able to kind of tap into somebody that they did a deal with, that that buyer did a deal with a couple of years ago. And it's fantastic information because they, they can kind of lay out the, the playbook a little bit. As much as I said, every deal is different. If you've got the same acquirer, they tend to do deals probably with some some uh, normalcy. And so just getting that feedback is really helpful. So all of this can be summed up by saying, you know, do a lot of thinking um, on the front end. And if you have the luxury to do it, sometimes capital needs are exigent and, you know, everybody needs to survive. But it's great to start thinking about these things a lot earlier than you think. And those relationships take a lot longer to, to you know, blossom than you think. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something in in when you were talking about you know the rolling over an equity interest, right? So if you if you got a if you got an owner, what kind of equity security does the new equity partner have compared to the rollover shareholders? And you know, let's say there's some debt or some leverage that's 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 part of the transaction. How do the shareholders get comfortable with the amount of leverage that's going to be added to the balance sheet? Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I would say it's really important to get as much information as you can on that. Um, at the same time, it's it's not surprising that it's with, it's it's inside the model of a lot of these acquirers when there's a rollover piece that you know those rollover rights should be thought of as as equity participation and not a lot of control or influence. And obviously, you see some circumstances where you know somebody might sell the business, roll over a significant chunk, and maybe have a board seat or something like that. But it's pretty typical with a serial acquirer in kind of a private equity structure it's for, for them to have a vehicle that's going to sit in a waterfall probably below, you know, the equity investors in that PE fund, as you might expect, and the general partners of the PE fund, as you might expect. But but understanding that it's it's important. So there's, like I said before, there's a diligence process. And so your question about debt and, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to structure like a rollover piece. Uh, you know, and, and it could be that the entity remains intact and, and you just sell a control piece and it kind of stays put. But a lot of times like a new vehicle is created, you know, you're rolling into that vehicle that may have done other acquisitions. You may be sitting alongside other former CEOs or leaders of other businesses that got rolled up. And so you want to ask the questions you would ask if you were an investor in a new business, you know, how is this business capitalized? What is the growth strategy you know, how do I fit in? How much control do I have over, you know, any of these things? How highly leveraged is it, you know, and, and what's the ultimate plan for, you know, that, that's a two-step transaction for for this. You're, you're selling a control piece in your business. You're rolling it over. You're probably hopefully deferring your taxes. And then you're going to have an ultimate sale transaction where the rest of your, you know, equity gets gets sold. What does that timeline look like? You know, what what is the again the the investment thesis for the for the private equity group and how quickly can you expect a you know return and how can you influence that so i think those are all kind of the questions that can be bouncing around and you'd be surprised how often those are almost afterthoughts or happen very late in the transaction and so i think that you know a great theme to kind of pull away from all this stuff is there's a lot happening in these transactions and so you know getting out ahead of it, thinking ahead, starting to think through the roadmap, and then leaning on your advisors to help you with those things. There's there's a lot of quarterbacking. There's a lot of, you know, process running. It's easy to get the timing jumbled up on these pieces. And so, you know, it's just not atypical in a transaction to get near the end and start thinking about certain questions that it would have been really helpful to have addressed 
in the beginning of the process or earlier in the process, because the deeper you get into it, oftentimes the less leverage you have. And so I think it's really important to kind of figure out the pieces where you're going to need to really throw a lot of your kind of bargaining chips and your your negotiating power in when you have, you know, the the more optimal leverage to do so. Is there a uh, recurring theme or a common denominator of not necessarily unforeseen through your lens, but from the stakeholders perspective, they wish they had known ABC or XYZ early on rather than this just popping up at the end. Is there a common theme that pops up towards the end that takes these these folks by surprise? Yeah, I, I don't know that it always takes people by surprise, but there, you know, I, I would say there's a couple of elements of deals that that for what whatever reason oftentimes get kind of pushed to the end, maybe because they're kind of the less glamorous pieces or there's like a lot of trust up front. But I would say employment packages, sometimes the non-compete, you know, details, an element that I feel like often falls to the end of a process and and can kind of cause a lot of people to pull their hair out are things like working capital adjustments, the details of earnouts, things like that. Um, so I think that that's, that's where, you know, a good group of advisors can can help you kind of focus on the right things at the right time. But, you know, again, the it's really hard to predict all of that stuff with with 100% accuracy. I'm not sure I've ever, ever seen it done that way. But I, I like to kind of tell people again, like just constantly be thinking about the leverage points and bringing up those things at the right time because um, you, you get deeper into the process. And, and by the way, it's not always this way. I just did a transaction this summer where the buyer, I think, unfortunately, left a lot of kind of the economics in flux and the process dragged on really on the fault of the buyer and those economics got better and better and better for the target company. And they really wish they had locked that in up front. And so their delays kind of didn't matter as much. And in fact, the leverage almost kind of went upside down and and the buyer was able to, or the the seller was able to get a lot of terms that they wouldn't have, but that otherwise, and I think that's a, that's a more atypical thing. Usually you're deep into a process, particularly if you're selling the business you know, you may have capital needs, you may have business cyclicality or other things that are sort of staring staring down at the end of the tunnel. And so you might get to a point where there's key pieces left unnegotiated or, or you know, to be determined. And you just say, okay, we just got to get this thing done, you know? And so that's not an atypical thing. It doesn't mean you failed, but, you know, to the extent you can get out in front of certain things, uh, it's great. And And so, you know, like employment terms, packages, the, you know, the team, you know, what is what does that all look like? Um, those are great things to get out in front when you sort of have more leverage, you know, to advocate for yourself and your team. Is it inherent? Maybe not all the time, but is there a natural friction that arises when you're when there's a negotiation, let's say, for the the package for the the founder? If there's a single founder staying with the acquirer, let's say purchased by a strategic stage with the acquirer where there's a, an earn out potential for that founder, mm-hmm. but perception might be at the detriment of the other stakeholders who will not benefit going forward from that point. So does that make sense where yeah. you start getting competing interests and how to massage all of that and keep everybody, keep everybody happy? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And not not to get into, you know, 
the the details too much because that's uh, there's there's one way to guarantee loss of listenership on a podcast and that's to to get into a lot of legal detail. But um, I could take a subtle hint. I could take a subtle hint. <laughs> there's a uh, no no, it, but that's absolutely something to be thinking about. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot. You see this happen a lot. Like you've heard the term like aquahire, and and this used to be just a kind of like you know, anecdotally, you know, you get these deals where it isn't really a huge success, but you're, they're bringing the team on and they're, you know, kind of, they're either like acquiring the IP or shelving it or doing something, but it, it's kind of a, it's a quote unquote exit. Some of them can be lucrative, but for the most part, it's not, it's not the, the typical, you know, home run success. And in those deals, you've got really, it, these acquirers are buying a team and these companies may have had investors or other folks on the cap table and often do. And so, you know, it's a great example of when this tension exists because the team is getting a new job and new packages going forward and you can negotiate those things. And it's very important to understand like whose interests are being you know negotiated for. And, you know, oftentimes those, those sellers have fiduciary duties to all their stockholders. And so they can't say, well, you know, there's a pool of, $20 million mm-hmm. here. And so we're going to, we're just going to shift the lion's share of it into our going forward packages and then kind of leave the rest of it for the investors. You know, that's a, that's a great way to get a lawsuit because the investors will say, well, that wasn't our deal. And you kind of used your influence to kind of shift the, shift the ratio. So I do think it's often, there's a, there's a lot mixed up in, in these packages. There's a lot of tax considerations and, how how retention works and whether that flips like treatment from a possibly a capital gains to an ordinary income because it's more like services based. Um, there's a lot, and and I'll 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 plug there. I can't believe I got this far without saying the word tax, but that is just one of the key pieces. And I'm speaking your guys' language now, but there's there's so much that comes up on any of these transactions that are tax considerations. And I, and I think the earlier you can start thinking through those things and spotting issues and making sure you're protecting tax assets or giving certain tax treatment, the better you are. So, you know, let's just like underscore that and double circle that, you know, that's a key advisor to have have on early in the process. But yeah, so back to your point, like there's a lot of tension that you need to be concerned about because you do have individuals. And then if you have other stockholders, I mean, if you're 100 percent, you know, owner of your business, Good luck to you and congratulations on keeping that piece of your cap table. But uh, many pe- many people don't have that luxury, and so that you you have to take all those considerations into account. Brian, I, I'm glad you brought up tax. I'm curious ballpark of, of the deals that you've participated in. How often, percentage of the time, do you see the key stakeholders still at the very end, pre-exit, right up to the sale itself, where they still own? all of their stake in their personal name versus having engaged in some semblance of of pre-liquidity planning? That's a really good question. I think it's changing to more and more folks have, you know, a a trust and estate advisor and they've done, you know, early on the process, either at formation, maybe in a perfect world, if you can, if you can have that much forethought or somewhere in that process to, to have involved those types of folks. I would, I would still say, it's probably less than half the time where, you know, on the cap table, it's kind of represented in, in some form where there's been some advanced tax planning versus just a straight individual. So there's definitely, you know, work to be done and education, more education to be done on, on that front. And again, I'll plug, you know, service providers like, like the two of you, 
I think having those conversations early on so you can just identify things like it's not atypical at all to get a letter of intent to acquire the business, maybe out of the blue, and you suddenly have to fast forward on all of these conversations and think through. And oftentimes even, you know, you get it and it's like, you won't even have the detail of the types of structure um, that, that the deal, you know, we want to acquire the business and that's it. And here's what a great acquirer we are. That's not an atypical LOI that puts you at a real disadvantage because there's not a lot of detail in it to work off of. But yeah, that's a it, it's it's not unusual, but that's that's when a lot of the tax planning starts. So I think if you can get out in front of that, there's there's obviously you've got things like the trust and estates planning or 1202 qualified small business stock. I mean, those can be those can be huge tax wins, but you can't just check the box when you're doing a transaction. You know, you have to you have to plan sometimes years ahead. So there, there's almost never too early a point to at least start thinking about the you know tax considerations, even if a deal's not on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Good stuff. Good stuff. Ryan, I wanted to pivot here for a second here. We've been talking, you know, primarily around, you know, engaging a, a new equity partner, whether it's, you know, private equity or or some other form of new investor on the cap table. Let's move to kind of the phase where somebody says, okay, you know, it's time to, let's go ahead and go through the process, the sale process. Break it down for us as far as the, you know, the main phases of what that process looks like. And then also, you know, as you're, when it gets down to that one firm, how do you, when you're negotiating with that firm, how do you, you mentioned leverage points, you know, during the process and how do you keep them from renegotiating? You know, we're seeing that happen, you know, in some huge deals right now, right? Where they're wanting to re- renegotiate the deal. So maybe you can unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. Kind of taking those in order, I think you you see one of two circumstances. One is, like I said, you're kind of conducting your business. It's going great. You don't really have an eye to sell. And then somebody just pops up and, and you know, you get a kind of a preemptive offer to sell and need to consider that. The other is you start thinking, okay, here's where I think our financial results or whatever metrics are going to be at the end of this year and projections into next. And I think at some point in Q2, three or four next year, we want to exit the business. That's where we're going to be, you know, optimally positioned. From a business standpoint, you can't predict like obviously the the macro environment. But I think that a lot of companies think along those lines and may either start to just reach out, have those conversations, start like testing the waters or you know, run a formal process through an investment bank or financial advisor to start identifying targets. And so in that case, those processes are much more structured. There's going to be, you know, you're going to be flooded with Gantt charts from the advisors as to what to do and when, which is really helpful to have, have that kind of process. But I think you can run a mini process, even if you're just thinking about, okay, we might be looking at an exit in the next 12 to 24 months or 36 I still think there's a lot of value in the process. And, and so what I mean by that is the old sort of getting your house in order, making sure you've got the right team internally in place to do a transaction from a business leader standpoint, looking at all of the classic things. This is like what anticipating what a buyer is going to look at in due diligence. And this is where we play, you know, a pretty significant role is you know, as we're working with companies, you know, from the get-go or saying, okay, let's, we're, we're 12 months away from a transaction. You know, let's look at all of your, 
commercial contracts. Let's look at your customer agreements. Let's look at your equity agreements with your owners. Let's look at IP ownership documents and making sure that you've identified issues up front because kind of back to the theme of leverage, if you are trying to fix issues after you got that LOI or during during the process and you've kind of are finding things, that's obviously putting you in a, in a harder spot and, and a spot with less leverage to fix that if you're having to go to a partner or an ex-employee or a customer or somebody to get a concession or to change a term or to fix something, knowing that there's a transaction on the line, they'll sense that, right? And so I think there's a great value in kind of having an ongoing mindset or particularly at a juncture in time well ahead of a transaction, start thinking about those things, doing doing like a mini audit, doing kind of a dry run through a due diligence checklist. And then maybe even kind of, you know, a lot of businesses could do this as a matter of course, but, you know, create like a data room, even if it's, you know, a, a set of folders on Dropbox or some kind of whatever system that you use. So you have an inventory of all your things that will help flush out where there's issues and will just like help you kind of track things for your business. And that that's also going to make the diligence process when you get to a deal a lot better and a lot smoother. And a lot of times, and again, there's, there's a lot of psychology in these deals. If a buyer comes in and you're prepped and your documents are in pretty good order, you know where things are, you're kind of crisp in your answers, you've thought, you've thought in advance of a lot of what the kind of classic issues are, that's going to put a buyer's mind at ease. And if they start uncovering, you know, every door that opens, a skeleton pops out, they're going to be expecting a skeleton at the next door. And, you know, that's, that's, that's going to put you on your heels as a, as a, you know, seller. So that segues a little bit to kind of your second point, which is like, how do you avoid being retraded? If you find the answer to that, let me know. I think it'll be very <laughs> valuable across the, the ecosystem. I'm not sure there's a great way to do that. I think one of the, one of the key things that we tell folks is, Okay, you're going to sell the business. You get what I call a LOI, a letter letter of intent or a term sheet. You know, it's kind of the the opening salvo. Like, hey, we we we're interested. Here's what we think the terms are. Again, it's very common for from the buy side for that to be honestly a little bit more of a marketing document than real meat and potatoes terms. It's going to be look at all the you know financial resources and assets we have under management and the wonderful things we've done and these great deals that we do. We're we're a terrific partner for you as a business. But it's all that's all well and good. But what are those terms? What does this transaction mean? All those things that get sort of pushed to the tail end. The LOI is the point where as a seller, you want as much detail in there, generally speaking, as possible. Because once you sign it, you're generally in a you know exclusivity period, sometimes called a no-shop or a non-solicit. You are now dealing with that partner and that partner only, and you're not even allowed to pick up the phone and entertain a conversation otherwise. So the minute you sign something like that, you lose a tremendous amount of leverage. And so hopefully you've done your homework, you feel good about this partner, you know, they've done a number of deals and you've talked to some of those folks and you've built in a lot of those details because the worst thing you can do is like, oh, let's kick the can down the road. Like, we don't need to solve that now. We've got this, you know, exciting deal. And I like the I like the headline number in there. It's, you know, that's a number that gets everybody excited. Well, there's a million details that fold up to build up under that number. And that's where things can be chipped away. So one of the things you can do to protect yourself is, is to get those terms set up front. 
Now, that said, most of those LOIs are non-binding, but for the exclusivity period and the you know things like confidentiality. So the deals can be retraded. And oftentimes, I mean, we, we saw, as you can expect, around March, April, May of this year, 2020, for those you know future listeners, hopefully the world looks a little smoother then uh, for, for all of those. But yeah, you know, a ton of deals got retraded because the world was kind of, you know, super volatile and nobody knew what the future looked like and where it impacted a business. I mean, if you were in the hospitality business or you were running a string of hotels and you were about to sell it, you definitely got retraded or the deal fell apart. And so th- there's certain things you just can't necessarily get around. But I think if you can have a lot of those details in upfront, you at least have sort of like an understanding between the parties. And then the other thing you can do is do that upfront diligence on those partners. Do they have a reputation for the death by a thousand paper cuts during a deal process or do they stand by their original deal? Um, you know, you can get a lot of that information in the marketplace to at least give yourself the best possible position or understand what you're dealing with. Because if you know you're going to get retraded or there's going to be an attempt, that's probably going to bolster your your desire to, you know, get some be more aggressive on the upfront terms, knowing you, you may land a little lower. So, right, we've been part of some deals that have been uh, retraded, but they, they were they were legitimate in the sense that they were COVID related. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking enterprise value, one and a half billion being cut down to something a decent amount less, but still very very noteworthy, and it was legitimate. Uh, on the on the flip side, we've seen businesses whose prospects have exploded to the upside because of COVID. It's been an interesting dynamic so far this year. Speaking of COVID, how has your workflow, not necessarily working remotely perhaps, but uh, are there clauses now entering into the legalese that are uh, pandemic related that you had not seen prior? Or uh, just generally speaking, are the structure of deals changing in consideration of COVID? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great question. Um, you know, at, at the highest level, what's been interesting is you know a, a lot of deals, some deals kind of broke early on just because of what you're talking about. The, the enterprise value just fundamentally changed, or the you know the buyers got nervous or wanted to kind of pause on the sidelines for a bit. In my experience, that that ended pretty quickly, and we've actually seen a a really robust M and A environment. I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. There's a lot of capital to be spent. I think, you know, with every passing day, people get a little bit more comfortable about it's a new world, but at least it's a new world and, and you know what it's uh, going to look like for the immediate future. So it's it's driving a lot of deals. And I would say of the M&A we've worked on kind of from, from call it April, May forward, I think a lot of those deals, you're starting to see more attention paid to things like force majeure clauses you're starting to see the word pandemic show up. You know, I've, I had a deal this summer where the buyer just, you know, in the third or fourth round of the definitive agreements, all of a sudden we got a COVID-19 rep. We got a COVID-19 compliance covenant and a special indemnity, which is, you know, for for those kind of, you know, playing along at home, that's kind of like the, the blank check coverage. And so, you know, we, we had to fight really hard as the seller to get that stuff out of there and say, okay, yeah, I, I get it. It's a new world. You want enhanced protections. But I think there's people, there are buyers that are going to take advantage of a situation or at least use it as an opportunity to 
do mm-hmm. that retrade or chip away and get the protection. So that, I think there's fairly typical to now see deals where at least there's kind of like company reps and warranties around COVID pandemic preparedness. You know, what what does this mean for your your you know business that might have in-person elements or you know commercial elements or your data security you know like what are the impacts there and, and repping to that the other thing that I've seen show up is a lot of companies took the PPP loans the the pay loan protection act um, loans and dealing with that because there's a forgiveness element but it's really as I'm sure you've all experienced we're sitting you know at a at a time of year where those loans have been out there for several months. They they are in all likelihood going to be you know possibly forgiven or or fully forgiven, but not yet. And so when you're closing a deal with that debt on the books, not knowing if it's going to be forgiven and and that you know those dollars kind of you know show stay and and our income or are going to have to be paid back like traditional debt, that shows up obviously in a cash free debt free deal. Like how do you deal with that and how does that how does that get treated in the working capital adjustment? And it's not totally obvious how that happens, and a lot of it depends on the the timing. So those are the two main things where I've I've definitely seen those showing up. And you know, it may be temporal. We'll see what deals look like a year from now if people are still super focused on on pandemic clauses or if we're we're onto onto something else, alien insurrections. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Who knows? Twenty 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 is not over yet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I hope not. Well, Ryan, you've been very generous with your time, and and I really, uh, both Jason and I, really thank you for that. You've given us some really good information here, and I want to be respectful of your time. You know, I think you know some of the key takeaways here is there, there's a lot of information out there, and when you're a business owner and maybe you haven't done a transaction yet, and you're up against a, a an equity, you know, a, a professional institutional investor that's done it, you know, tens if not hundreds of times. You need a good team around you. It's an emotional experience and due diligence is is definitely a, an important thing. Uh, is there anything, just as, as we kind of wrap up here, anything else that you would advise these business owners that are about to, to embark on an exit? If I may add to that, just taking your attorney hat off, the more sentient <laughs> part of it, besides the, the money and the friction and the pressure and the stress. Yep. Yeah, I, I think all of those things can be addressed. Um, you know, you you kind of summarize the considerations, but I just think advanced planning is really important. Getting a team around you that is obviously going to be helpful and equipped to do the deal, and and not just really obvious things like you want a really strong CFO because that person is going to be super integrally involved in the deal and is going to be very helpful. But you know. Planning on a transaction taking longer than you thought, making sure you have cash in the bank, you know, some of some of the kind of the blocking and tackling things, some of the less obvious things that I've seen be really helpful, you know, not just getting time on your side and doing doing the advanced planning and starting to, you know, kind of get ahead of that process, but just building, I think, a support network around you. I mean, it sounds a little touchy-feely, but it's really important. And I've I've done deals, you know, where the, the founder or CEO was a part of a business network or, you know, like a YPO or an EO or an informal business group. And obviously you have to be very careful with confidentiality, but, you know, or a spouse or a friend or, you know, or a business contact who's been through a similar process. 
having somebody like that as an outlet during that process can be really helpful, not necessarily to, to dig into specific business issues, but like playing that psychological support role. I mean, these are emotional deals. Oftentimes, it's something you've spent years and years and years building. There's an intense and very logical emotional attachment to that. And you're potentially about to get a lot of money. I mean, there's a, there's a roller coaster ride, and all of that stuff gets amplified during this process. And there's a lot of pressure. And so I think surrounding yourself with a good team, not just the professional team, but you know the the you know the, the family support, the friends, you know, and and leaning on that when you can. I think that that is all helpful. And and again, whether you're raising your Series A or doing a private equity control deal or selling the entire business. Those deals can happen really quickly, but oftentimes the timing will stretch out. You don't be able to fully predict, you know, how long it will take. And so I think just factoring in a little bit of a buffer time in terms of your calendar as you're operating the business. Um, and Josh, you had mentioned kind of offline. It's hard to run a business and do one of these deals. Those are those are both full-time jobs and then some. It takes a big team and it takes a support network and you need to you need to have it in place. And then don't be bashful about using it. And I think that's, that those are the deals where I've seen people be successful, where they've they've got those they're wrapped with resources, formally and otherwise, and then they draw on those. Right. Good stuff, Ryan. Hey, thank you so much for for spending an hour with us this afternoon. Very very helpful. Yeah, it's my my pleasure. I appreciate that you guys are that are doing this, and I'm happy to spend an hour with you and be able to talk through some of these deals. So appreciate you having me on. Well, good deal. Thanks, Ryan. Well, this is uh, Josh Pottinger and Jason Chorgianis, and uh, remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time.